from a little boy, I've always loved this time of the year between Thanksgiving and Christmas. As an adult and as a Christian, there's just something restorative for me. It just restores me. It's restful to me. Even in the midst of all the melee of the Christmas season, there's an anchor of just recuperation for me to go from a season of really heightened thankfulness, which we just came through, now heading to a season of heightened reflection on the birth of Christ. And I hope that you, like me, treat that seriously. And I will tell you something that I've had to learn from my own experience. Your life will never become unbusy until you take control of it. And you can take control of it. And there are blessings waiting for you when you slow down and reflect on the birth of Christ. And this Advent season, we are inviting you to reflect very simply on the name and the title, Emmanuel. So we're going to begin with a quote from Tim Keller. You're going to see it on the screens. And I want to invite you to look at that screen, one of the screens, and I want you to reflect on this because we're going to come back to it as well. But it's going to undergird, or I guess it's going to tether us throughout this message, actually throughout this whole Advent series. Here's what Tim Keller said. Christmas is the end of thinking you are better than someone else because Christmas is telling you that you could never get to heaven on your own God had to come to you. Would you hold on to that? Kind of chew on that a little bit. You know, every once in a while, I, when I first began trying to grill steak, I was an utter and absolute failure. We would eat the food and the steak, and it would always have a really good flavor. But with our whole family would be sitting there looking at each other laughing because you had to chew it and chew it and chew it in order to swallow it. Well, this is kind of what I want you to do with that quote. I don't think it should go down too easily. I mean, it might have sounded kind of cool, but when you begin to really grasp the depth of what Keller was saying and the depth of where I'm going to take you in this message, this is one that you've got to chew on for a long, long time and savor the flavor of it. And when it gets down into the digestive system of your soul, it's going to provide a radically, awesomely different way to live. The Bible declares that the universe was created by Jesus Christ. I'm going to take you on a journey in this message, and we're going to go all the way back to its roots. That's the Garden of Eden. And when the Bible does declare that the universe was created by Jesus Christ, now listen, if you've grown up with evolution going into your mind over and over, just this unmoved big bang, which no scientist can really understand the unmovable mover principle of it. But when you really begin to reflect on this, that the universe was created by Jesus Christ, forget what your science class is telling you, hold the authority of the word of God high, 
And then you begin to read Colossians 1, for by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth. All means all, and that's all that all means. That's a Greek for the English word all. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. That's who him is referring to, Jesus And as you look at that verse, I want you to note again the phrases by him, through him, and for him. God created all there is by Jesus. Now already you may be learning something. I don't know, maybe you're not, but perhaps you are. That Jesus is the one of the triune God that spoke it into existence. And through Jesus, it was created by Jesus, through Jesus, as he spoke creation into existence. Why? Well, look at what Colossians says. For him, for his pleasure, for his glory. Now, there are people that I've seen as I've visited their homes homes that have a really beautiful painting that they put into a bedroom or a den in which they almost never go. So Jesus didn't create the universe and then hang it on a wall in a little used room like a painting in some corner of the universe. His creation is the object of his delight and his interaction and his pleasure. Now, I'm, I don't even know if you're realizing this, But what I'm telling you is utterly, profoundly deep. You're not going to get it unless you chew on it and savor the flavor. So I'm going to say it again. His creation is the object of his delight and his interaction and his pleasure. God loves his creation and chief among his creation, humanity, who he made in his image. There's nothing else that God created that is in his image that you will ever see on this planet other than humanity. God created it all so that he could interact with it and dwell among it. He wants to be with what he has made. Now, again, I'm just going to keep saying this. You're probably going to get irritated with me, and that's all right. Wouldn't it be a new thing for some of you? This is really deeply beautiful. God wants to dwell among his creation. He wants to be with it. He doesn't want to hang it in a room in a corner of the universe that he seldom travels to. He created everything so that he can interact with it, dwell among what he made. And in fact, one of the earliest church theologians, by the way, one of the greatest ones, Augustine once said about God, thou has made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. So, Christian, I want you to know something, and by the way, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is just as true for you as it is for the Christian. You've been been created with an impulse that is so deep, that goes all the way to the very center and the core of who you are, it's inescapable. You can turn down the volume button, but you can't hit mute. It is a deep, soul-central desire to be with God. It is masked through drugs and sex, 
through a life of fame and materialism in a million other ways. But all of those are expressions that there's something missing in us until we find our way to God through Christ. And then all of a sudden it snaps into clarity and our restless heart finds rest and satisfaction. That's what Augustine is saying, that we were made for God and he desires greatly that each of us is with him and that he is with us. Now, did you catch what I just did? He desires greatly, I'm going to summarize that, to be with us. Now, I've taken you on a journey. I don't even know if you remember our starting point. I've been pontificating for a few minutes. But we started all the way back in the Garden of Eden, and God would walk through the garden in the cool of the day. Do you remember reading that? Genesis chapter 3. Enjoying time with Adam and Eve. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being out in the woods in your property or in a park And God joins you there and walks with you and talks with you. That's really what was happening. How amazing. But then Adam and Eve sinned. Now you ready? Listen to this, if you would. They committed treason. They did what they thought would make them like God. They defiantly ate from a tree that God had told them very clearly to Adam and Adam's job, and I have no reason, you should not either, of suspecting that maybe he didn't communicate this to Eve. He was perfect. He was an excellent communicator. Uh, Certainly, he did. They were prohibited from eating from one single tree. They had everything in the Garden of Eden to enjoy, but one tree. It was a test. Would they say no to an illicit impulse of desire because their love for God was greater than love, their love for themselves. That was the test. But they failed. I don't think you or I would have done any better. God, who is crystal pure and holy, without even a nanoparticle of metaphysical sin, he cannot dwell with or be in fellowship with sinful, tainted humanity. Now, by the way, let me explain that. It's not that God is prudish and wrinkling his nose at sin like some high society royal person among the common folk. That's not what it means. It's actually more that a sinner's encounter with the full-on holy God would be lethal for the sinner. You would die. I would die. It can't happen. You know, I've wondered often, actually, if the ending scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark got it more right than we actually realize. You know, when they opened the ark and they looked inside and the glory of God was there and they just began to fall apart at the, at the atom, at atomic level, rather. The only way that a human being can dwell with God is to be made completely sinless. And Adam and Eve had no way to scrub their souls clean of their defiant act of rebellion. And even more is the fact that sin is repugnant to God, and it creates a problem that humanity cannot solve. So God expelled them from the garden. Did you ever notice that he 
It drove them into the east, east of the garden. That is biblically a compass heading that regularly, all through the Bible, symbolizes the place for lost and sinful humanity in the world. That's the east. Now, we just began our journey, and already we wonder, did God lose his creation? Are his hopes dashed that he wanted to dwell in and among creation in relationship with those he made? And already he's driving them from his presence. So we turn the page, and we see that his people have now multiplied. We're in the book of Exodus, and they are multiplying among the people groups on earth. And through God's providence, they come into this country called Egypt. And when Moses comes on the scene, the people of God, Israel, numbers nearly two million people. And they are in bondage to Egypt. They are slaves to Egypt. They are miserably crying out to the Lord their God for help. And God heard their cry, and he delivered them out of Egypt. And while they traveled to the land that he had given to them, he had Moses construct a tabernacle. It's a movable tent. And the Bible is gracious enough to tell us why God told them to build it. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Do you remember me telling you that God created all that there is so that he could live in and among them and have relationship with them and dwell there with them? It's God's desire to dwell with his people, and he would do so from within the tabernacle, the most holy place, except he could only be approached by a sinner through a sacrificial offering. Something has to die to cover your sin. And only the high priest of Israel once a year could actually come into the interior of the tabernacle where God's presence dwelled. They used to tie a rope and they put bells on the end of his robe because if he went into the presence of God and he had not been sanctified, he would die, so historical records tell us, and they would pull his body out of there. God wants to dwell among all that he has made, especially those that have been made in his image. The tabernacle was not the end of the journey. So we turn the page again. And now Israel has made it into the promised land. And David, a man after God's own heart, has died. And Solomon, his son, reigns on the throne. And Solomon does what God would not allow David to do. He builds a temple, something better, something unmovable, than more than the tabernacle tent. He builds this glorious temple. And what does the Bible say. 1 Kings 8, then Solomon said, I have indeed built you an exalted house. What for? It's a place for you to dwell in forever. Why? Because God wants to dwell in and among and with his creation. It was a beautiful temple and kings and queens came to see it from their distant lands and God was in a house. He wasn't in a tent, but even though he was in the midst of his people, they still had to approach him through sacrifice. Still, only the high priest once a year could come into his glorious presence. If you were not a Jewish person, you could not even go into the interior courts of the temple. And to make matters worse, far worse, one day, 
That incredible temple is going to be destroyed, reduced to rubble and burned by Babylon, but not before God would depart because of the sins of the people. Because a holy God will not dwell. He cannot dwell with a sinful people. And it would be 584 long, dark years before that page of history would turn again. But it does turn again. And John shows us this new page in God's journey to dwell in and among his creation. It's our text for us today. I hope you have your Bibles open. It's John chapter 1, 14. And it goes like this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John, the, the, the apostle, tells us that God tabernacled. He dwelt among us in flesh, verse 14, and he did it in the person of Jesus. Yet this, this divine dwelling would not be permanent. Jesus would be put to death, and it is in his death that what Tim Keller said becomes glaringly seen, and we're going to see it very clearly in just a few minutes. Jesus would die, his dwelling among us not yet permanent, but he promised that God would never leave or forsake his people, and so the page turns again. Now we're in Acts, and the Spirit of God has come. And when that Spirit came, he will dwell in each of his children and among his children in the church. Ephesians 2 says, in him, Christians, or in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we are now the dwelling place. You are individually Christian as he dwells in you to help you live God's commands, but he dwells among us and he brings the flavor of God, the love of God, the attributes of God into expression through the church. We're being built into a dwelling place for God. Listen, this is why you should never, ever, I should never, ever attack the church. It's why if we're ever upset with the church or anybody in the church, do you dare not slander it? You go deal with it. You go sit down with them. You get it out so that there's peace as far as it depends on you. That must be the case. Why? Because God dwells in his church. See, God has a new home, and Christian, it is in you, and God is bringing you and I and all of us together to be a new temple, a new tabernacle for him to dwell and live and love and enjoy. Yet even now, neither you nor I see him face to face. We don't touch him. We don't have an audible conversation with him. We cannot walk together physically in any garden in the cool of the day with God. This cannot yet be the culmination of God's plan to reclaim the dwelling that he once enjoyed with Adam and Eve. There must be another page. And there is. One day it's going to turn and that journey of God will be complete. And Revelation 21 tells us what it will be like. And I saw the holy city, John wrote, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now listen to this. 
Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That incredible journey that started in Genesis 3, that moved to the tabernacle, that went into the temple, that came into the person of Jesus, now, right now in this age, through the person of the Spirit of God, now, finally, God, through Jesus, in his body that is glorified, will dwell with us forever. I hope you can see from that very brief overview of God's journey the incredible truth that God has created us to be with him. And every step of the way, he has pressed toward his desire and his goal to dwell with us. But we've got a problem. And here's where I'm finally going to give you two points in your outline because some of you can't enjoy a sermon without outlines. So I'm so gracious to you. But here's where we come back to Tim Keller. Christmas is the end of thinking you are better than someone else because Christmas is telling you that you can never get to heaven on your own. God had to come to you, and he has. Look at John chapter 1 with me, would you please? Look at verse 1. John uses the word word to refer to Jesus. He is the living word of God. By the way, can I just tell you a very cool little thing? The Bible is the written word of God that leads you to the living word of God for a transformational experience. That's the way it works. So if you're not in the written word of God, Don't be surprised that you're not meeting the living word of God and your life is not changing. You can't bypass God's word. There's not an antiquated notion, well, that was for the okay boomer generation, but not for today. This is the only way. This is the means. The written word of God, it will lead you to the living word of God, Jesus, for a transformational experience and John uses that word word to refer to Jesus he's the living word of God and in the beginning Jesus was with God and he was God can I tell you what that word with means is a preposition in the Greek it means facing so for all eternity Jesus was in unbroken intimacy facing God his father he's always been the son eternally he didn't become the son when he was born he's always been the son And God the Father has always been the Father, and the Spirit's always been the Spirit. But yet, there's been unbroken intimacy within the triune Godhead, and it's been glorious. This is why Jesus cried out on the cross the only time he ever uttered pain and anguish. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father turned his face away. He's never experienced that before, ever, in eternity. This is the very first time that the Father could not look on the Son because the Son was bearing our sin. He's the living Word of God. 
He is with God. He was with God and was God. The Son of God was already there at creation. The Bible says, John says, all things were made through Jesus. Then John seems to hit fast forward in his writing. Look at chapter 1, verses 6 through 80. introduces us to this really weird, odd, but incredible figure called John the Baptist. He's the herald. He's announcing the coming of Jesus. That was his job. By the way, one of the best, I think, ways that you could argue the sanctity of the unborn human life that's still in the belly of its mother is because while John the Baptist was still within his mother, he erupted in movement when Mary came near who was pregnant with Jesus. They got proximity. I had a dinner recently with somebody who has a pacemaker and has a, an iPhone cover that's magnetic. He said, watch this, Tim. And he takes the phone and he moves it up against his pacemaker and it starts shrilling out this alarm. I said, don't do that again. That is just freaky. Listen, when you're in proximity, John the Baptist and Jesus, all of a sudden, John the Baptist, unborn, full of life, begins to erupt in movement. And we get introduced to him in verses 6 through 8. Verse 9, he tells us that the true light of the world, Jesus, was now coming into our world. Verse 10, Jesus is now in the world, and, and though Jesus made the world, it didn't recognize him. In verse 11, the majority of his own chosen people, Israel, didn't recognize, did not affirm him as a Messiah. In verse 12, those who did affirm him as a Messiah became part of his family, the children of the Heavenly Father. And then John writes, I think, one of the most amazing verses in all of Scripture, verse 14. Let's read it again. The Word became flesh. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What does that even mean? I'm going to give you two points. First, Jesus... The eternal Son of God had to become human if we were to be saved. This was not even an option. This was not just a good idea that God had. This is the only idea that he could have if he's going to save humanity. Colossians 2.9, for in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Are you, are you grabbing that? That's incredible. For in Jesus... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is why we say Jesus was fully human and fully God. We don't really understand that, I don't think. I've never really read any theological explanation that just put it to rest. But it's true nonetheless. And God had to do this if he were to save sinners from eternal judgment. God the divine cannot ever die. But God the man can. Godness is unkillable. Humanness is frail. It is weak. It is able to die. Godness cannot identify with us. He is ever above us, which is what holy means. And a Savior must come, must take on flesh, if he's going to identify and die and save any of us. 
And by the way, this is what the writer, we don't know who it is, but the writer of Hebrews writes this. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, Jesus, like his brothers in every respect. Can I just put it in modern language? Jesus had to be made like you and I. Listen, don't think that anything that you're experiencing is unique to you. You cannot ever pray and go, God, if only you could understand. He does understand. He went through it all. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So you're never going to be able to go through a temptation and then say, you know, I'd really like to pray to God. I'd really like to appeal to him, but he just doesn't understand the uniqueness of my trial. You can never pray that. Because he understands everything. He couldn't understand everything if he did not become man. If he did not take on flesh. If he did not come to dwell among us. He couldn't even take on flesh and stay in heaven. He had to live in this plane of reality. Breathing this air. Feeling these colds and viruses. And and stubbing his toe and hitting his thumb with a hammer. He had to experience all of that rejection in order to be our faithful high priest. He had to take on flesh in order to die for us. And sympathize with us. And show us how to live. How do we know how to live? How do we know how God wants us to live? It might be outdated and overused and trite, but WWJD has, has a ring of truth. What would Jesus do? Maybe what did Jesus do is a better way to say it. But that's how we know how to live. The word became flesh. And I want you to look really hard at this. Look at verse 14. You can't miss this part. And dwelt among us. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought of it like this, but let me give you a point too. We'll unpack it. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came to us because simply we could not come to him. John does not say, and nowhere does Scripture say, that if you want to be with God, you must find your way to him. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6, God dwells in unapproachable light. You cannot even find your way to him. Even if you knew where he was, you wouldn't be able to get to him. He is an unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. God is entirely holy. He is completely above and beyond our ability to approach. We cannot find him. We cannot even see him. There is no way in an eternal effort that you will ever find your way to God or get yourself there. It just is not possible. John doesn't say in this verse that we dwelt with him, we could not do it, we lack the means to scale the heights, we cannot gain access to him, which is why Keller said we can never get to heaven on our own, God had to come to us. Now listen, now we're talking about Emmanuel, God with us. This is the beauty of this season. And if we'll just slow down, and you can do that. You're not out of control of this. These are choices that we all make to be frenetically busy. And if you slow down and reflect, even if you've got to get up a little earlier, 
or go to bed a little later or take your lunch time to reflect on it, if you reflect on what it means that God took on flesh and came to dwell with us, it will change how you navigate through life. If he is to be with us, now this sounds bad, by the way, what I'm about to tell you. If he is to be with us, then it's his job to come to us. He's got to create a way for us to be in his presence. I don't mean to say that arrogantly. It's just the truth. There's no way that we can make it to him. So if we're going to be with God, the fact of the matter is he's got to find a way to us. And he did through the birth of the Godson, Jesus Christ, who would provide the means for us to be in God's holy presence. God became a man so that he could dwell among us. He crossed that divide. He came down, Philippians 2. The trajectory is down. He came down out of heaven, gaining access to us. This is why he came. We who are a lost and sinful people, and John tells you what his, what his character is like. Look what it says in verse 14. He is full of grace and truth. Now listen, it is time once and for all that we settle what it means to talk about grace. I know you've been inundated with a pop theology definition Grace is God's unmerited favor or some form of that, and there's nothing wrong in that. It just does not really get to what it means when the Bible talks about grace. So I'm going to tell you what it means. Let's get it into our anchor, anchor it into our souls. Grace is the loving power of God to take away a person's sin. That's what grace is. Now, we're not going to talk about it because it's not in the text, but mercy is God's loving power to heal you from the consequences of your sin. But mercy necessarily follows grace. Because your sin has to be removed, and then God does a work to rebuild you, to restore you. It's the loving power of God to take away a person's sin, and the means for God to do that is none other than Jesus. That is the means. And by the means, I mean the only means. Now, you might be sitting there going, well, Pastor Tim, bulls, sheep, oxen, turtle doves, all through the Old Testament, did they sacrifice these things and, and their sins were taken away? The answer is no. They were never taken away. They were covered. All of the blood of all those animals only had the power to cover your sin so that you could be with God again. It could not take sin away. The only sacrifice that can remove sin from your soul is the one that Jesus made on the cross. And he is full of grace but he is also full of truth, John says. And truth, listen, just think philosophically for a moment. Some of you like this, some of you don't. It'll make it simple. Truth tells us that there's a fixed moral point outside of us. And we live in its gravitational pull. It's not something, truth is not something that you can change to suit your fancy. It's always objective, it's not our prerogative to define. We cannot dictate it. And by the way, Jesus embodies it. He is the truth. 
It is Jesus who is full of truth that confronts us that there is one way to God through him. People don't like that. They don't like the exclusivity of the gospel. They want to believe that there's a lot of roads up the mountain. They're all going to get you to the top, but go ahead. Start on the path of the Baha'i faith. Start over here with Jehovah's Witness. And start over in the Middle Eastern countries with Islam. It doesn't matter. You're all going to get to the top of the peak of the mountain. You're going to find God and the Bible and Jesus more than anyone says. That is a lie. I am the way. To God. No one comes to him but through me. That is truth. It is objective. It is embodied in Jesus. And the truth is, and it's confrontational, that there is no one whose natural goodness can compare to the goodness of Christ that he demonstrated in his life. We've all fallen short of it. Yet Jesus is full of grace, and salvation can be found in him alone, and he can take away sin from the one who believes in him. Look what it says in Acts. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do you want to see grace and truth brought together in the Bible? Listen to this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All of us, friends, all of us have defied God. None of us deserve his forgiveness. Yet God graciously offers a gift, and it is salvation through Jesus. And it's because Jesus came and dwelt among us. He clothed his divine person with human frailty that we could be saved through his death and burial and resurrection and then become sons and daughters of his heavenly father. Now, I am one minute, 22 seconds from being done. I have no idea if that's accurate. But my point is, let's really fix, fix your mind on this. This Christmas season, we are inviting you to reflect deeply on the amazing name Emmanuel. And the Bible is so gracious to tell us what it means. It means God with us. To reflect on that truth that God is with us through the person of Jesus. That he came to the very, now listen, listen to this. He came to the very people who have shaken their fists at him in order to save them and give them life. And there is an unstoppable determination in God's heart to dwell with his people. And Emmanuel tells us he's willing to pay whatever the cost needs to be paid in order to make that happen. So what really are the implications of that amazing truth? That's where we're heading, Lord willing, next week. Emmanuel, God with us. It's the name of the Christ child who is on an irresistible journey to be with his people. Is that not a glorious name? Let's pray.